G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. Growing up in Watcham, Western Victoria, Lawrence Richmond had no idea that there were opportunities to be a farmer beyond his farm gate. That was until he hit 21 years of age. An opportunity came up to head out to Tilopia Downs, and the world of corporate agriculture opened his eyes to a world, literally, of possibility. Fast forward to today, Lawrence joins us from Romania, where for nearly one and a half decades, he's been helping to manage properties and providing consulting services to farmers in Russia, Romania, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. In this chat, Lawrence shares about the opportunities for him in global agriculture, how he's overcome the communication barriers, the reality of farming in parts of the world that are experiencing war, and why that he believes saying yes is one of the best things that you can do. Lawrence Richmond, a global cropper, currently in Romania. As part of the GRDC in conversation, you're the first person we've spoken to who's working overseas in the grains industry globally in farming over in Romania. And fortunately for you, except for just for that last two minutes, you've got better internet than us here in Australia. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, oh, well, look, it's amazing. No matter where you go in Romania, there is fibre optic cable absolutely everywhere. So, uh, and, uh, you know, if a provider you want to sign up to a two-year plan, the internet providers will actually put fibre optic to you if you haven't got it already. Yeah, wow, it's incredible. Yeah, that's right. Slightly different to back home where you're flat out trying to make a phone call once you get 10 days out of town. So Yeah, but I suppose you look at population density as well. Like in Romania, there's you know about 20 million people and the size of Romania. I'm not quite sure how it probably compares to Victoria. Definitely adds up then, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. And so what is it that's taken you over to Romania? Okay, so uh, it's, I suppose, opportunity. I was asked uh, 12, 14 years ago now to go to Ukraine and do some consulting on a farm over there. And then that sort of morphed into a couple of years later saying, well, you've got some really good ideas, but they're not being implemented. So uh, the only way to do that is to actually come over and implement them yourself. So that's what we did 12 years ago. And then that morphed into uh, four years ago, taking over a 15,000 hectare property in Romania. Wow. And so is Romania the only place you're farming currently? No, no, no. We're still farming in uh, Ukraine as well. The farm in Ukraine is uh, approximately 120 kilometres from the uh, front line. This time last year, it was only 50 kilometres from the front line. So it was a little bit more exciting last year. I don't know about that. I reckon you can keep that, Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) How have you guys got on with that? And I'm sure we'll get to it more in the conversation, but how have you guys got on with the farming in Ukraine amidst everything that's going on? Okay, so... Basically, for the first six weeks, everyone went to ground and we stopped farming operations for six weeks, which meant we were later later applying nitrogen than we wanted to on their wheat crops last year. But, you know, we actually got everything done and we got our sunflowers seeded, albeit a little bit late. The year 
wasn't fantastic as far as season-wise. We had a little bit of a drought last year, so yields weren't great. But the worst thing is, is when it comes to harvest time, harvesting our wheat, is that the best price we could get offered, we were being offered at harvest time was 80 US dollars a tonne. And that was because the only way to sell wheat that period of time in July last year was to actually truck your wheat outside of Ukraine through Romania or Poland or Hungary or somewhere like that. So it basically meant that we had to get our grain to Constanza, which was a two or three day uh, trip. But it was also the truck would have been held up at the border for another two or three days because there was that many trucks trying to get across the border. So hence, uh, you know, the price of wheat should have been close on $300 a tonne, but they're only offering to 80 Yeah, wow. My God. But we ended up, you know, with the grain corridor opening up, we're, we actually, we only just uh, two months ago, we ended up selling the last of our wheat from last year. And uh, we ended up selling for just over 200 US dollars a tonne, XR farm. So we can store every grain that we can produce. So that's a handy thing about being able to store everything you produce. And has it been fairly disconcerting, like farming with everything that's going on kind of around you? Oh, look, it, it all started back in 2014 with the takeover of uh, Crimea, of which I was in Ukraine for the whole period of that time as well. But I haven't been in Ukraine for the last year, so uh, since the war broke out because it's just a little bit dangerous. But, so, but at least during COVID, it's actually taught us to, uh, to manage things remotely. So we've been sort of doing that for the last year or so as well. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, I think what I'd love to do is take our audience back a little bit, Lawrence. I know you grew up in Victoria, not far from Birchip, was it? Yeah, not, yeah just south of Birchip, a little town called Watcham. And uh, you know, at that time, there was still a school in Watcham and all that sort of stuff. So uh, uh, primary school. So we went to primary school in Watcham with one of uh, seven kids. God, that's a good town name, isn't it? I'm sure you have plenty of puns about it over the years. Well, apparently the origin of the name came from the fact that there's a lake just west of Watcham and uh, the local graziers had cattle and and apparently they'd say to the to the uh, Aboriginals that uh, they needed to watch the cattle, so they'd watch them, and, and that's how the name came about, I think. I don't know. We'll run with it and I'll tell you, at least it's a logical name. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, That's right. Now, what's your earliest memory around agriculture and kind of what memories does it bring up for you? Okay, so memories for, of agriculture for me is uh, you know, sitting on the back of a 20-run Massey Ferguson combine as Dad was sowing crops during the May school holidays and things like that with uh, bags of wheat and super on the truck and loading the 20-run loading the combine up and, and sitting on there for the day and things like that. Was it always something that you wanted to go and pursue? Oh, absolutely. I've loved farming and uh, so... But I really didn't see that there was a career available in farming until I was probably around 21, outside the family farm, let me put it that way. Yeah, so did you finish school and headed back home to the family farm? Yeah, finished school and headed back home to the family farm and did a, uh, a four-year apprenticeship with Dad, a farm apprenticeship with Dad. Uh, and uh, so that was back in 1982. And uh, at that time, there was four of us boys from Watcham that went and did a farm apprenticeship to TAFE College in Charlton. So we'd drive there every every Monday to go to trade school, which was quite a good experience. And there was no girls in the class at all. It was about 12 or 14 boys at that time. But, but of course, 1982 was one of the worst droughts uh, in living record in that part of the world as well. So uh, that year, we ended up seeding only 100 acres of wheat that year and it never emerged. So most of my time during that year was actually spent uh, deep ripping fields to uh, stop them from blowing. <laughs> 
Yeah, wow. What did it teach you about farming that first year? Well, it, it actually taught me to, uh, to be very conservative and uh, you know, not to, uh, to try and not spend too much and actually try and take care of the land a lot more as well. And do you think, looking back, this is just a, a general interest question, with what we know now, was deep ripping the right practice to do back then or would you have been better to let it sit? Well, if we let it sit, it would have just been blowing away. So we actually had to bring up clods to actually stop stuff from things. So I think it was the right thing to do at the time. And uh, it probably helped our soils long-term in some ways. Yeah, wow, it's interesting, isn't it? And what happened at 21? You mentioned that 21 was around where you saw the opportunity outside the farm gate. Okay, so that, this is where I uh, left Dad and went to, uh, to be a, a station hand over on a property at Tilopia Downs, north of Caniva on the South Australian-Victorian border. And that was a you know, fairly large farm. It was 45,000 acres, you know, running uh, 30,000 sheep or so and uh, cropping about two or 3,000 acres of crop. So, uh, and that's where you know, I could actually see the structure of corporate agriculture a little bit. And uh, so that from then, that's when I decided to do a, a farm management course at Glen Ormiston. And that led you down the pathway of setting some ambitious goals that you wanted to be a farm manager by the age of 30? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. What significance do you think? Like, why was 30 the goal for that? Was it someone you could see? No, not, no one I could see. It was just a sort of a, it gave me a sort of a nine year horizon of where I wanted to get to. And I was reading some notes about you and it was that this was your life goal. So I'd love for you to tell me what's it like to tick off your life goal by the age of 30? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. It's just, in that there is the, there's a problem of, okay, what's next? So, because what I'm doing now is was completely unplanned. Yeah, no, that's fair. You know, it's funny. I don't know why, but that age of 30, I had a goal that I wanted to be working for myself by the age of 30 as well. And I held that for quite a few years <laughs> in the lead up to as well. And then it kind of just, you hit it, it rolls over. And so what was that, the farm manager role that you had by the time you hit the ripe old age of 30? Yeah. So I, I was managing a, a, a primarily a grazing farm uh, down at Lexton, just outside of Ballarat which we then uh, turned into a, a wheat sheep farm because it was that, just at that time when, uh, you know, that Western District sea change of cropping was really taking, starting to take hold. And that time there was, you know, wool was a little bit depressed and all that sort of stuff. So it was just those, one of those natural things. It's really interesting now and going back through the Western District, isn't it, just to see just how much cropping country there is and just how productive it is. Oh, absolutely. And uh you know, wet years, they probably struggle a little bit like last year, but they really shine in those drier years. And it's, we tend to be getting more drier years than wetter ones at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting little pocket of farming. So have you still got the interests in and around Ballarat there and the Western District? No, 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 no. So uh, when I, got, I stopped all interests uh, once I started uh, in Ukraine. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about that. How did the opportunity in international agriculture come about for you, Lawrence? Okay, so it came about why uh, one of my largest clients, uh, a Singaporean grain trader, who had this farm in Ukraine, and he came to me because he, he used to bring some of his clients out to the farm to show grain production and things like that so they could actually see where the grain come from. So he said to me, look, you know, we've got the, I've got this farm. It's underperforming. Can you just go over and have a look and have some ideas? So that's how it all started. So you just tend to fall into these sort of things and, you know, the ability to have a passport and say yes. <laughs> Did you know much about the international ag space and the opportunities and what was happening in other countries? No idea. I'm completely unaware. Tell me what it was like hopping off that plane on that first trip. 
hopping off the plane in uh, Odessa, being met by someone you have no idea with holding your name card up, and all he was was a driver to take me to the hotel <laughs> into a country that you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, and you think that it's this wild east type type of thing, which it isn't. I've never felt unsafe in Ukraine. You know, so it was quite off-putting. But, uh, but look, you know, at the end of the day, people came and met me when they said they were going to come and meet me, and uh, <laughs> it all worked out. Is it 12 years ago nearly would have been, if you had an iPhone back then, you would have been a pretty early adopter. No, there was no smartphones at that point in time. It was, <laughs> it was 14 years ago when this was. So, so uh, I think iPhones just coming out just afterwards. Oh, my God, right on the cusp of it, well and truly in the day then. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, but that's the way of the world. It's, you know, you've got to have a little bit of faith that someone's going to meet you at the other end. But, you know, that, that, that all sort of played out. I was, back when I was younger, I was a member of Victorian Young Farmers and I won a uh, study scholarship to uh, or a farm exchange to Queensland for six weeks. And it was the same sort of thing. You, you never knew who you were going to meet at the other end of the bus trip or whatever. Just blind faith that there'd be someone there and that it was all organised by someone with good intentions. That's exactly right. (laughs) So what was the purpose of the first trip and what actually were you doing over there at that time? Okay, so I came over, it was um, August when I did it. And uh, so it was just after wheat harvest, just before sunflower harvest. So it was to come over, look at how they were doing things and suggest ways of making things better. So at that time, you know, 7,000 hectare farm, employing around about 120 people. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Can I ask why? Because this is the way things were done. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah because you've you got, you got to think 14 years ago, like they'd only come out of communism about 16 years before, so nothing had really changed. So, you know, lots of equipment, uh, full cultivation, ploughing fields 20, 30 centimetres deep, using 120 litres of diesel a hectare, all of this sort of thing, huge amounts of fertiliser, Seeding wheat at 300 kilograms per hectare, seeding it at 6 million seeds a hectare. Yeah, wow. Crazy, crazy thing. So, you know, you've got this mad Australian coming in saying, well, we can cut the seeding rate in half. No, we don't need as much fertiliser and we're not going to cultivate our soils anymore. Simple as that. And how did that actually go down there, Lawrence? <laughs> oh, well, I've heard every argument under the sun of why we need 6 million seeds. Mm-hmm. What was the most ridiculous? Uh, we have very strong winds. We've got to see it thick to hold it all up. Okay. <laughs> and the other one is, is oh, we get winter kill, the wheat doesn't tiller. But the whole thing is if you seed it six million seeds, it hasn't got room to tiller. So <laughs> you go out to the edge of the field where they spilled a few grains and you go, this is the same variety. It's got 10 tillers on it. You're talking bullshit. <laughs> like, I guess, well, the southern region, it's about 80 kilos, isn't it? Selling wheat up. Uh, 80 to 100, yes. Yeah. Yeah, my gosh. T- typically, the southern regions is around about 2 million seeds per hectare. Yeah, wow. When you say it like that, it's huge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it was done because you've got to think during communism years, fertilizer was basically free, fuel was free. Like all the farms used to get a fuel delivery once a year. My God. Yeah. So just very, very different. And you got all the management of the farm don't work and but there's two or three layers of management that don't work and then you get down to the tractor drivers that do yeah so i'm interested how did as an outsider were you brought in just as a consultant to assess what was happening or how did you actually go about facilitating the change 
Yeah, yeah. So for starters, I, I went about came in as a consultant and to try and do that. So I came across for two, three weeks, trips, you know, every three or four months to see if I can make change. And this is how it wasn't had the ideas, but wasn't being implemented because as soon as I left, they wouldn't do anything about it. So so that's why the owner said, look, the only way you're going to do it is to actually come over and uh, implement. So we came up with an agreement that, uh, you know, I do three two-month trips a year. So try and cover the seeding of uh, seeding of wheat, harvesting of sunflower, that that's happens at the same time. And then, you know, spring period, we're seeding of sunflower and then the harvesting of wheat. So there's key times. That's now morphed into me being outside Australia for nine months of the year. So in bargaining power, we'd say they've got a lot more bargaining power in this than you, Lawrence. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but, uh, but my remuneration is a little bit higher now than what it was as well. Oh, well, that's all right. <laughs> yes. And, like, what were the barriers to actually getting the change? Was it just, was there an unwillingness to, for people to pick it up or was it, was it just that there was so many of them that people didn't know who? There wasn't an unwillingness. It was, there was a willingness, but it was, you can imagine it, if you can't see it, you can't do it. So... It wasn't until I actually stuck on the overalls and crawled over a combine to assess it for parts or got on the tractor and did the seeding and things like that, that they, you know, number one, they thought it was really weird that this consultant from Australia knew how to actually drive a tractor, knew how to drive a combine, all of these sorts of things, because the management here don't. So, and did you go through making big redundancies as well? Yeah, big redundancies. So we... So, like now, we're down to around uh, 40 people. Okay. Sold lots of equipment. The interesting thing is, is that I didn't need to buy new equipment because we had all the equipment that I needed to go to minimum tillage or or no-till farming. We just had to adapt it a little bit. But I had a flexi-coil seeder. So, all I had to do is take the 10-inch wide sweeps off it and put knife tips on it. Job done. Just a little bit of Aussie ingenuity. Well, yeah, but then to try and get the knife tips, they, which they weren't available in, uh, in Ukraine at the time. So then I had to write to FlexiCoil in Canada and say, can you please supply me with these? So after that, now that now you can get them readily in Ukraine. I'm really interested. Well, let's chat to just the global agriculture space. When you got out of the Ballarat area, out of Western Victoria, and saw what was happening in ag around the rest of the world, what was obvious to you? Obvious is... Um, they're raping and pillaging the soil, typically using way too much fuel, too much cultivation, too many inputs. So I have a catch line on my, uh, on my Twitter feed of uh, matching inputs to rainfall. And so what does that look like in practice? Well, what that looks like in practice is uh, now, so what I do is I use the French, French and Schultz, is it, or something, the model of you know, the 20 kilograms per millimetre of available moisture type stuff and and the Neil Delgleish from CSIRO developed all that soil water information. So I use, I use a lot of that sort of information to work out what my plant available moisture is in a given year. I actually do soil tests at the start of every cropping season to actually measure how much moisture I have in the soil before we seed the crop. So then I actually can track the moisture of that soil through the crop and actually come spring, apply the amount of nitrogen that I think will match the amount of uh, grain that I'll produce. Yeah, wow. And is that something that was and is being done back in Australia that when you observed it or was it something that you... Well, well, it was, it's sort of I've adapted the yield profit type thing a little bit. You know, I've taken all these little bits, 
and made some of them, you know, whether they hold up scientifically, I don't know, but the main thing is they hold up economically. And so what is it that I guess is for you, what are your observations telling you about what's working over there that is similar between Australia and what are the things that are quite different about it today? Okay, so number one is typically here beforehand, they always put the inputs on for their best year, which most people in Australia actually put the inputs on for a low to medium year because it's more likely going to be dry than wet. So, you know, the key things when, when we first came to Romania is, is that most people have 30 to 40% corn. We stopped growing corn. Two out of the last three years have been complete disasters on growing corn, and yet they're still growing corn. Because during communism years, corn was the main crop because that fed people. Whereas now so much of it's going export. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, and what about Europe? What's been the interest between Ukraine and Romania? Is there anywhere else that you've been farming in the last, what, 12, 14 years that you've been over there? Well, I've done some consulting in Kazakhstan and, and Russia as well. You know, it's a, Kazakhstan is just vast. Like you're basically, the field is dry for, you know, you have a 5,000 hectare field in Kazakhstan and completely flat, no fences. It's unreal. But the yield, the average yield in Kazakhstan is about 1.2 tonne per hectare. Okay. If you don't have to turn around as often, it probably starts to work itself out. Really big equipment, very cheap, basically organic farming. Okay. What is Kazakhstan like as a country? Because I've like, well, I know it through, I can't believe we're saying this on the GRDC podcast, but through Borat, which was just completely not accurate. Yes. But then I've seen photos of a mate who backpacked through there a few years ago, and it just looked like the most amazing country. Oh, it is, and it, look, it depends on what part you're in. Like I've been all the way down to uh, Jakant, which is down on the Chinese border with Kazakhstan, and up to the north as well, and north of uh, Astana, or it's uh, oh, they've changed the name of the capital city in the Kazakhstan now, uh, Nol Sultan, it's called now, after the leader of, after communism. And uh, it just the cost of getting grain out of Kazakhstan to a market is just prohibitive. We looked at getting high-protein wheat out of Kazakhstan via train through China into Southeast Asia, it was going to cost 150 US dollars a tonne. Yeah, it doesn't leave much of a margin, does it? No, it doesn't at all. Wow. And what about the other countries? Russia, I think everyone talks about in terms of its fertility and ability for farming. Yes, and and the, the area I've been in was uh, east of Rostov on Don, which is down in the down in the south, a place called Volgodonsk. That country reminded me of the area where I grew up around Watchman Birchip. It was a similar type of soil. It was a, a reddish brown soil, similar type of rainfall, and uh, you had sheep farms dotted around as well. But the sheep farms are basically just a, a warehouse or where the sheep are housed every night, and then the sheep come out and graze all the farmers' fields of wheat and all that sort of stuff during the day, and you actually have security to try and keep them off. <laughs> yeah, wow, it's pretty handy. <laughs> Pretty handy for the sheep farmers, not so much for the grain guys. That's right. Well, that's a big problem for us in Romania as well and in Ukraine, is keeping the sheep off our, our fields. Well, and something I read that security, so is the security just for the animals or is it also to protect crops and machinery as well? From Okay, so there's, on the security side, it's by law, we, if we have a building like or a warehouse or something, it has to be guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that means that if you've got an asset, you've got to have four people to be able to secure that for a year-round 24-7 operation. So we've got security for there, but we've also got security that roams around the fields to keep shepherds off our fields, keep the villagers from stealing some of our crop and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, wow. 
that you know and we if we leave machinery out in the field overnight there is a security that stays with that machinery as well because we you know if we come back the next morning we won't have any fuel in it we won't have batteries and all those sorts of things and so is it hard to build trust amongst like I'll say the local community but also amongst your workforce as well are there like 40 people is a lot of people yeah absolutely look but there's something that uh my, my colleague Greg uh, and myself, who we manage this operation, um, we try and build up a lot of trust within the core group. And we, you know, a lot of people are used to getting lied to. If we say something to the people, we'll try and deliver that. You know, where a lot of people, you know, they've heard of all these stories before and they're used to, uh, yeah, sure, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess it starts a lot with you at, at the management level and flows down. Yes, that's right. I'd love to know. What's it like? Because the countries and places you work, English like would be a minority language. Is that right? So what's it like to work in that environment? Well, so, so like in, in Ukraine, for example, I've always had uh, an assistant with me to, uh, to translate. I can speak a bit of Russian these days. And, and particularly if I'm, uh, if I'm talking to a, you know, my agronomist, for example, we can communicate quite well together as long as it stays in farming terms. Yeah. The language of agriculture. Do they ever look at you with some of your... Australiana sayings and things and go, what on earth is Lawrence talking about? Absolutely. Well, one key one was when I said, oh, oh, we'll do that in a fortnight. And everyone stopped and looked at me and go, what the hell did he just say? They didn't know what a fortnight was. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So I had to say, in two weeks' time. Fair enough. Have you ever been pulled up for saying the words, no worries? No, because I really don't say it much. Okay. Now, I know when I was working in Canada, we're pretty good at the sides here. When I was working in Canada, and obviously a huge Australian thing is to say no worries and get on with the job when someone asks you to do something. And they used to be like, no, we will worry. You've got to take care with what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you mentioned at the beginning, you haven't been back into Ukraine for the last 12 months, but what is it like for the farmers and, and for the operations that you guys are running through there at the moment? Wow. Can you imagine at the moment, every second night, you'll be laying in bed and you hear a, uh, a ballistic missile going over your head. That's what's happening to my guys in Ukraine at the moment. Very off-putting. And like, they don't know whether it's going to land near them or whether it's going to be 200 kilometres away or whatever. So this is where the war has gone to now. Is uh, like. Last year, I, I spent a lot of time helping to get uh, a lot of our workers' wives and families out of Ukraine. But now, all the people I helped get out of Ukraine have now gone back into Ukraine. So things are starting to normalise, particularly like the area where we're talking about is Nikolaev, which is where our farm is in, in Ukraine, which is uh, 80 kilometres inland, south-central off the Black Sea. And see, Nikolaev was the, uh, the city where all the, the shipbuilding for the Russian Navy was during the Soviet Union. So, you know, you had, they built aircraft carriers and things like that in Nikolaev. Nikolaev was actually a completely closed city during the Soviet Union because of all that. And so for you, you've got this added complexity of not just worker wellbeing, you've also got the challenges of literally ammunition and missiles and things coming into the workplace. Like as a manager, like that's one of those things that you can't do anything about. But like, how do you approach it? How do you communicate to them that, yeah, we keep pushing on or is this something that they're really looking to drive through their community yeah they're very much looking to drive through their community because uh, you know we would have been quite prepared for them to abandon ship last year but you know they they want to keep their community because basically the the village that the farm is based around survives on the farm 
and it always has because you know even back during communism years the village was the farm so they do have that mentality which is really good yeah and look in the ukrainian spirit is fantastic because they've, they've always had the attitude that we're going to win this war we're not going to give up and this is something that the the russians didn't counter on and so how do you think that has shaped your perspectives being obviously being an australian but working in agriculture obviously how's that shaped your perspective i guess just about life in the world in general well you know most people in in ukraine live that have the attitude of we live with today because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and they've always had this attitude even before the war you know so where we tend to plan 20 years out ahead and all that sort of stuff so which i still do but uh you think well and gee you got these people that are making you know if they're lucky to earn a thousand us dollars a month they're living on a shoestring day to day but they're happy so you've actually got to be happy with your situation that's the key and does that help because as you mentioned it started off as three two months since now you're spending most of the year away your family's still located here in australia aren't they Yes, yeah, my daughter's going to university and uh, living in Ballarat and all that sort of stuff, so, yeah. Yeah, wow. Does it make it hard being so far away for so much of the, the time? Yes, it does. It does, but uh, but I, I suppose, like my mother always says, I, you know, why, why can't you get a job back here in Australia? And I said, well, I like what I do. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know, what would be your advice to, say, younger people in agriculture who would maybe potentially float the idea of working overseas but yeah i guess for younger people involved in especially the grains industry why should they potentially look at exploring those opportunities abroad oh the whole thing is it just opens your eyes up to so many opportunities like uh for example in the next month i'm going to the groundswell festival in the uk now that's all about uh, holistic farming so you know i'm not that i'm holistic farming here but uh well i'm sure i'll pick up some points about things that are being discussed there and might be able to implement them here because it's all about uh, all about sharing information and and like the people that I've met in doing this like I've met uh, people from all over the world in bars on a Friday night in Nikolaev or wherever that are involved in agriculture or what and, and you actually get, become good friends with them so I've actually got friends all over the world like when I'm coming home from the UK next month, I'm going to drop into uh, to France and, and meet a farming friend from Burgundy and stuff like that. So it's good fun. That's incredible. Now, Lawrence, before we jump into it, we've got five questions which we we'll ask everyone, but is there anything that you'd like to touch on or, or share, I guess, about your experiences, your journey, anything you want to chat to? Well, look, the key thing is, is always be prepared to say yes, because if you say no, it means you don't have to do something. But if you say yes, you actually have to do something and it, you, God knows where it might take you. And so what have you learned on that about, I guess, in a situation where maybe you've said yes and taken on more than what you're capable of or have capacity for? What have you learned during that? Well, you've just got to be like a duck and uh, look nice and calm on the, on the top of the water and paddle like shit underneath. <laughs> and then do you find that you get to the other side and you go, oh, actually, that was doable? Yeah, it's, it is. It, but you also be prepared to use all the resources around you. Like there's plenty of support, plenty of people out there that will help you and support you in doing what, the, what you want to do. Yeah, I love that. Do you still find yourself regularly reaching out? Yeah, look, I do. And like reaching out to people all over the world. It's, you know, because you know, the internet is such a great thing these days. You can watch a YouTube video and, and then if you want a question, you find out how to email them and, and ask them and things like that. There's never be afraid. Yeah, anything's possible in this day and age, isn't it? Everyone is, literally everyone is accessible if keep on trying or have a bit of luck. That's right. 
Okay. Well, Lawrence, off the back of that advice, which I absolutely love, just say yes. Let's hit the fast five questions. I know you're not really looking forward to it, but we've just got to tick them off. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, what is your favorite grain-based dish? Um, That would be uh, spaghetti bolognese. Good choice. Might have that for dinner. (laughs) Who'd be three people that you're inviting over for a bit of spaghetti bolognese? Okay, so the three people are uh, Michael Chilvers, which is who unfortunately died last year. Now, Michael was a, uh, a Southern uh, Panel member and a farmer from Tasmania, but he was also a Nuffield scholar. And uh, while he was doing his Nuffield scholarship, he actually came and visited me in Ukraine. And so we actually, and we're actually on a joint committee in uh, GRDC as well. So we actually become quite good friends. So I know he died last year, but uh, he was he's very sadly missed. Now, the next person is uh, Professor Ross Kingwell. He's uh, from AGIC in Western Australia. He's another person that actually came and visited me in Ukraine. When they did their report on Ukraine, their wheat report on Ukraine, I helped them in doing that and uh, organised some uh, venues for them to visit through Ukraine and all that sort of stuff. And we've, we've actually kept in touch ever since. Now, the third person is uh, Mike Lee. Now, Mike Lee is a British guy. And he runs a, uh, a crop forecasting business called Blacksea Crop Forecasting. And uh, he does Blacksea Crop Tours. And he does uh, tours through Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, and, and writes a newsletter about it. Uh, so he's quite an interesting guy. And uh, I was in the UK in January and dropped in on him. And, he, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, he called in on me here in, in Romania. And he does that every time he comes through. And we, have a, we have a dinner and a beer, which is always handy. It sounds like it'd be a pretty awesome little dinner conversation. I dare say, I think the grains would be on the, on the agenda, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, maybe. Quite possibly. Yes. <laughs> now, Lawrence, I'm interested. What was your first ever job? My first ever job was actually working on a farm. That's all I've ever done. Yeah, wow. Just in a few different places. Just in a few different places. That's right. <laughs> What's something that you've got on your bucket list? My bucket list is I really want to go to Antarctica. Oh, yeah, that'd be sick. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so maybe, maybe I'll get it done. Uh, you got to go off uh, from Argentina or Chile or somewhere like that and, uh, and go down there. I think it'd be really good. That would be incredible. And what's a question that you'd like me to ask a future guest? A question I'd like, to, like you to ask a future guest is, is our current farming system sustainable and how do you see it in 20 years' time? Well, I like that. Okay. I've got a question for you. And this one's from a previous guest. Do you think you're ready for it? Oh, (laughs) always. We've got so much opportunity out there to do things better. So what do you think is holding us back? And you can talk about it in a global context, but what do you think is holding us back from adopting better systems that allow us to make better decisions? You know, I I think we've probably discussed some of these sort of things already. It's just not being able to see them. We've always done it this way. So this is where we need to push the envelope a little bit. And uh, like typically in in farming, everything has been focused towards yield, where I think we need to focus on profit. So, for example, in our farming systems that I'm I'm implementing here in Romania and Ukraine, I don't want the highest yield, but I want a consistent profit. I actually want to have farms to be like a New York parking lot. In a New York parking lot, you know exactly how many cars are going to fill that parking lot every day and how many days it's going to be full. So you can actually budget around that. So I don't want to be farming, have this boomer year and the next year's being bust. I want to have this flat lot, ideally. Yeah. 
There was one thing which I'm going to ask you a question on only because it's popped to my mind, which one of my early managers that I had and he was all about, well, how do you just create an average year, year in, year out? And it was the perspective of someone outside of agriculture that said that. It was like, yeah, remove the boom and bust and start to, it was a sheep operation, but increase the predictability of your cash flow based off your decisions that you make. Yes. Now, one thing I'm really interested, so this previous manager of mine actually asked me this on the podcast, everyone, but look, how do you guys over through Ukraine, Romania attract and, and is there a challenge in attracting young people into the business? If so, how are you guys approaching that? Yeah. Okay. So it's something that we, I haven't started doing yet, but we've been talking about it and uh, we've got actually got a local agricultural university here in Yash. So I'm actually going to try and start having some internships from them over the summer, like over the university breaks to try and bring them in. But the thing is, my biggest challenge is trying to bring them in. I want to actually bring them in as tractor driver, combine drivers. But the problem is, because of the culture here, because we've gone to university, we're management and we don't do that. So there's a, we've got to do a little bit of a culture shift if we can. So it's something that's for me to work on over the next couple of years. That's a challenging one. And I wonder if, like, if they see you sitting in the tractor, if that very quickly levels out their expectations. Yeah. Well, the worst thing is, is these days I don't have time to sit in the tractor. So. <laughs> Just for one or two laps there, Lawrence. Show them how it's done and then get out. That's right. Yes. Cool. Well, thank you so much for spending a bit of time of what is your morning over there to sit down and have a chat with us. I, I find it fascinating. I think the world of agriculture globally is incredible. And I think I've got a little thing on my bucket list now to try and get to Romania one day and come and see what the operations are like over there. Well, if you come over, touch base, and uh, the invitation is always open. I'll, I can show you around. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lawrence, and look forward to chatting to you soon. Okay, no problem, Lawrence. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.